0: So where we come in is what I call the surround sound for a lobbying campaign. I mean, the days where everything can happen in a back room and nobody ever hears about it are pretty much over. I mean, things still happen in a back room. Right. But the risk of somebody hearing about it because of the democratization of media, social media, cyber vulnerabilities, the truth will often come out.
1: any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80-Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're broadcasting from Shaw's Tavern at 520 Florida Avenue here in Washington, D.C., right in the heart of the neighborhood called Shaw's. Both of which are named after the infamous Civil War commander Robert Gould Shaw, who Matthew Broderick famously portrayed in the movie. Uh, He was the the Union commander who led the first all-African-American unit in the Civil War and fought numerous battles to his ultimate demise in South Carolina. So you can imagine the struggle that they went through and why he is memorialized with his own neighborhood in D.C. It also happens to be just down the street from the new office of our guest today, Ron Hutchison. Ron is managing director with H and Strategies. Thank you for joining. Cheers. Great to be here, Bill. So H stands for Hill and Knowlton. Hill and Knowlton Strategies has been a long-time stalwart in public affairs, decades of reputation building and branding and has merged with a much more global presence. Now you have something like 80 offices That's worldwide. Right. That's fantastic. You get into public relations, you do corporations, you do causes, you do nonprofits. But with this huge global footprint, why is it important to be in Washington? Well, everything comes
0: through Washington, no matter what your business is. And you know, the technology community learned that lesson. They were sort of slow to learn that oh, lesson, yes, but sir. now they're all playing in town. And then the other part is we've come to realize one of our our approaches is uh, 1H&K, which means it's a a global firm with a global approach, and we're particularly working on the public affairs side to uh, solidify the nexus with Brussels because we've also seen that you know the policy that happens in at the EU affects the way people do business all around the world in the way that Washington does as well. So it's really important that we're linked up that way.
1: Now, I know H&K has a, a government relations team, kind of the pure advocacy that we've talked about many times in this podcast, but you have to play a vital role in advocacy as well, at least in policy creation. How do you view your role in that sense?
0: Absolutely. Well, we don't do lobbying. Um, we had a ma- lobbying arm that we no longer have actually. And we, we're, so where we come in is what I call the surround sound for a lobbying campaign. I mean, the days where everything can happen in a back room and nobody ever hears about it are pretty much over. I mean, things still happen in a back room. Right. But the risk of somebody hearing about it because of the democratization of media, social media, cyber vulnerabilities, the truth will often come out. So a lot of that is to, you know, to make sure that people have uh, a reason to do it know why they're doing it can justify it we kind of give them that kind of reason to license to operate um, and reduce the risk for doing it in in a lot of cases a lot of times say a member of Congress wants to do something but they want to make sure it's not going to bite them later Mm -hmm. so if they hear from people in their district saying hey this is something you want to do it gives them a comfort level to take action
1: yeah that sounds like advocating from the inside almost You're, you're sitting down with clients helping them create a strategy for whatever policies may impact their business?
0: See, I'd say advocating from the outside. the
1: lobbyists are on the inside,
0: we're on the outside, um, often at the grassroots, sometimes at the grass tops with the influencers in the community. But, But again, kind of so that when a lobbyist will go in and say, hey, you know, you really need to do this, Bill, and Bill's going, well, how will this play back home? We want them to have the comfort that hey, back home, either there's there's no risk or, even better, that your folks back home will applaud you for, for it. And a lot of that is, you know, working, sending the message about what is the public policy value of what you're trying to accomplish.
1: So we haven't touched on grassroots yet in this series, so I'm so glad you brought that up. What's your definition of grassroots?
0: That's Main Street America to me.
1: Um, and, you know... The truth
0: is, a lot of cases inside the Beltway, it's the, the influencers, which would be, say, the business leaders back home. But it depends on the issue. Um, you know, there are some issues where, like I say, if you had an agricultural issue, of course, you might want to hear from the Farm Bureau. But if you're hearing from individual farmers back in your district and you're in a farm district, or the local papers doing stories
1: about it, or local op eds, that sends a powerful message. So, part of the H&K strategy role in that sense, the grassroots sense, is helping to identify those entry points to Absolutely. help that message spread where a key decision maker might be paying attention.
0: And it really starts with what is the public policy value of this. I mean, that's the other thing that has changed, and I think for the better, with the democratization of the media and this whole idea of transparency out there. You better have a value proposition that you can defend. now. Often there will be a counter argument to it, but you better be able to tell your story about why what you're trying to accomplish will have some benefit for people. And that's really what we do. And then, you know, the lobbyists will go in there and say, you know, here's why you need to do it because it will benefit you politically. Mm -hmm. But we're sending that message that the people are listening and the people want this to happen or at least don't object to it it if you do it.
1: Yeah, you, you, you've been at this around 12 years or so, yeah, is sure. that right? Um, yeah. How have you seen that change in terms of how you would get those messages out there and what tools are being used? Two
0: things have changed. First of all was you know the role of social media and geotargeting and the sophistication of all those digital tools. But lately it's really funny. We're seeing more and more um, clients saying, Hey, we want media relations. We want media hits, uh-huh. because there's been this realization that so much social media conversation is driven by what is in the media, and especially, of course, the agenda-setting media. You're talking, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the Washington more traditional Post. media, right? So um, everybody, everybody also was getting into self-publishing. That was the other thing. And we used to tell clients, you know, the great. We still say this, but. The, The great thing about how the media landscape has changed is you don't have to rely on the media, you can tell your own story. But there's so many people telling their own stories, and uh, I actually think the people out there have become more sophisticated about it. There's a higher bar to get your story uh, to have resonance. If it's in the media, automatically it gets shared around, people will will give it some credibility that the company talking about
1: itself doesn't necessarily have. You know, I, I read so much these days, uh, and I, I even follow some, admittedly, social media influencers. You talked about the the mainstream media and a policy standpoint. Are there others outside of that traditional foothold that have now become important when it comes to advancing a policy cause?
0: There are, but it's really overstated in the um, in the political public affairs world. I mean, we have a tool that will identify social media influencers and it's really great if you're doing a, uh, a pop-up uh-huh. to find the people but I always tell people when they talk about using this tool in our line of work I say well you know Henry Kissinger's an influencer but you're not going to find him on Twitter or Instagram <laughs> so it's got its limits in our world and to me sure. it, you know it's kind of you know who the influencers are if you're in the public affairs space um, and maybe you'll find some outliers that you're not aware of but generally speaking, it's much better for consumer affairs,
1: things like that. So you're a journalist by background, by training. Right. And does, how does that play into this? How can you draw on your background, your original experience as a journalist to help a client with their public relations, with their advocacy and policy needs?
0: Two things. One goes back to what I was saying earlier. you got to know what your value proposition is, mm-hmm. and, and, and I can challenge them on you know that's not going to cut it you know the, the fact that it's good for my company or good for my cause isn't enough what's what's in it for the intended audience and then the other thing is first you know helping them focus on that and then helping them tell that story yeah. um, so i've been in journalism for i was in journalism for 25 plus years so you know of course i have a pretty good feel for what journalists want to write about and one of my I think one value add I bring is helping the clients understand. Every client thinks they've got the greatest story since Watergate and (laughs) they generally don't. So part of it is to get them to to understand, first of all, what is the value proposition? It's not about you. It's about the intended audience. And then secondly, it's helping them shape it in a way that's compelling, hopefully, and getting that story out there. Now, one of the problems I run into a lot is people say, well, you've got all these contacts or clients will even ask at the beginning when they're trying to get the business. Who do you know? No, I always say it doesn't matter who you know, it matters what the content is because the content will trump the contacts every time, like Bill if you're, you're my best friend and I come with you, we've been friends a long time, but I came with you, if you are a journalist and had a lousy story, you'd say I love you Ron but I'm not going to write about that. Yeah. That's, you know, I understand that and in fact I feel like my credibility is on the line if I'm pitching a story that I know they're not going not to want. Right so that's what I do is help clients really figure out what their story is in a lot of ways and then figure out how to deliver it to the right audiences which is also important
1: that has to be identifying that audience probably involves more science today than it used to in the past so i assume there's a bit of behavioral science yes uh, we have equation. a whole
0: behavioral science unit that looks at um you know what what drives people but so i mean just recently we did a, focus, a couple folk well a series of focus groups on an issue and really, I was thinking about it. the behavioral science is a little bit like a focus group, except you know none of these in public affairs, it's not a binary choice. It's not one or the other, it's, there's, there's shades of gray, and, and, and that really comes through in focus groups. Um, so I think behavioral science is probably more effective in the consumer area or, or in getting people to act on a particular, say like um, recycling, mm. figure out what moves things. But in a way, it's a focus group only more sophisticated.
1: Yeah. Some of the tools you use are traditional. I assume you're placing op-eds. You're probably doing some advocacy advertising.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the great things about Hill and Knowlton is uh, we've got the full suite of communications tools from in-house advertising, in-house research, social media, digital media. You know, so we will deploy all the assets at our disposal, depending on what we're trying to do you know sometimes a lot of these campaigns are strictly inside the beltway audiences sometimes they're out in the hinterland so we've done you know like massive grassroots campaigns um, in in, like in states across the country people on the ground activated to draw attention to a particular issue that's important to them mm-hmm. so that the message comes from the outside in
1: sometimes it's in in the beltway sometimes it's outside in. Mm-hmm. Right, With the ultimate target being the decision maker, absolutely. Intent, when it comes to a policy, policy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you're identifying the appropriate areas outside of Washington as right, well. Right. If someone serves on the Judiciary Committee; you may want to target that state. Right. We look
0: at the committee chairs, the ranking members, the people who have influence, even if they're not necessarily on the committee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the things that lobbyists would do, because again, we're really creating the surround sound for a lobbyist. that when they go in to talk to them, the members can say, yeah, I'm aware of that. I've heard from back home. Yeah.
1: Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American Maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts, or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel. And I can't tell you, Ron, I can't imagine a day when I go online to look at an article, say in Roll Call or Politico, without seeing some pop-up banner ad, typically an advocacy ad. Is that space getting way too cluttered? I'll bet you just click on the button to get right past it. That's uh, what I do. Everything I can to scroll through, yeah.
0: <laughs> so that answers the question, yeah. It's, um but I have to admit, it's I do notice, and, that, and that's
1: just my own personal bent, and I use those in my class. and yeah. we talk about them a bit in this series as well, but I do think it has to, you have to reach some point of no return or diminished returns where the eyeballs aren't focused. Anymore. And it
0: has to be compelling. You know, that's the other thing, that, that, and that's the biggest challenge. In a cluttered, whatever the environment is, in a cluttered environment, whether it's, you know, trying to get an op-ed placed or trying to get a banner ad, it gets attention. You got to have something that's a little bit different, which is a challenge.
1: Yeah. So, walk me through the the client process just a bit, if you would. Not, and you don't need to talk about any specific clients by any means. But what would be what might prompt someone to come to HK Strategies and say, "We need help." What can you
0: do? I think there's two. Well, first of all, two things. One either start because you know we're a well-known name, or more commonly because it's a referral or they've had some experience with us in the past. Yeah. Okay. But one of the biggest challenges, and we're dealing with a firm like this right now. They don't want to. They don't know whether they want to deal with Department of Defense contracts or the consumer market. Mm. So we got to go in. We go in and say, you know, look let us help you decide what you want to do here. We, we, we say we do purpose-driven communication, which really starts with, what is your purpose? Ideally, your purpose will link back to some societal good. We always are looking for that, but it may be you know, our purpose is to make money selling widgets. Like in this company's case, was it selling widgets to the Department of Defense, or is taking this product to the consumer market? And then we work with the client to make that decision, then how do we go about that? And, um, because it's a very different approach, right? Well, one is inside the beltway, and one is a, a consumer marketing campaign. Too. Yeah, so we that, that we work with. The, I mean, all along too, it's got to be a partnership because, and they got to be up front. Sometimes, like, uh, I worked with a client that, like well, I can say, this is this was not in public affairs, but it was a, it was a restaurant in a federally owned facility. And they said, okay, we want to you know, draw more attention to us. And I finally said, well, why would you want to draw more attention to us? Because you, you've got all the customers you want. Well, it's because their government contract was coming up. Oh, So they wanted to get the message out there. And sometimes it takes a while, my point is, yeah. to say, well, what is your purpose here? Why are you trying to hire us?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so once we figure that out, then we can figure out how to help them. Right. If that gets to who's your
1: market, who's your audience, how do we reach them? Okay. And I assume part of that ends up being crisis communications as well.
0: do a fair amount of crisis communications. And a lo-
1: is there a point at which it's too late to help a client in that scenario? Uh,
0: the crisis work that I do a lot, say it's the Justice Department Investigation, LIBOR case, Foreign Corrupt Practices, I've done all of those, where you you know you're going to get slammed. And what we do is we're really not going to affect the outcome of the case, but we're going to try to minimize reputational damage yeah. from the case. The other ones we've worked on that is more in the public affairs space are CFIUS, mm-hmm. Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and their review process. And that's one where you're not going to really affect the outcome because that is the ultimate inside game. But if you can do, it's sort of like if you're doing a criminal justice a, a, a trial, you can give some kind of a surround sound that makes it easier to say, hey, we're going to prove this deal. Yep. They're going to, you know, the, the committee is going to do what they want to do, but they're going to feel a lot better. If you know that, you're not going to get huge blowback from the public or from Congress for doing what you think you should do. And that's where we come in. Try to set an environment that makes it easier for them to make a decision that
1: is actually in the public interest, we hope. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what might have been one of the most challenging experiences you've had on this job?
0: This wasn't really an advocacy advocacy campaign, but I had one client that... uh, was um, it was a coal company with an ethically challenged leadership wow. um, that yeah we ended up
1: firing them Though. is that right yeah just could not help them anymore exactly we couldn't help could not sales. help them at all <laughs> yes, yes. exactly you. very good so, Rob, i'd love to switch just for a moment and talk about your background and your personal path and professional development here in washington so as i mentioned you're a journalist yeah by trade well, you were still recovering, journalist. Still recovering, journalist. Well, you were a newspaper journalist of all things. Yes, Talk about a dime
0: breed. Thanks, Dane. No rich. wonder you're doing this now. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> uh, but you have a master's in urban planning. Yeah, what, urban what affairs. What what my my idea
0: out? was uh, I wanted to work at like the New York Daily News or one big city newspaper. Got sidetracked by. Um, working at the Tarrant County Courthouse in Fort Worth, Texas, and then the State House in Austin, and then came up to cover Congress, and then ended up covering the White House yeah. during the George W. Bush administration. Yeah.
1: So was it uh, Knight Ritter at the time, or McClatchy? Yes, when it was Knight Ritter and then, then McClatchy. Then McClatchy, okay. So yeah. did you come to town to be the White House correspondent for them?
0: No, I came to town to cover the, the business beat. Actually, I was... I'd gotten an offer from Newsday in New York, but after spending a, a week in Long Island, I decided I didn't want to live there, and then yeah. uh, came up here just because the job opened up and I thought Washington would be different, and mm-hmm. then, you know, I've been here now
1: 20 plus years, and i love this city more every day. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm stable. glad I'm
0: not covering the White House anymore. It's a bit, a <laughs> bit challenging. That would be. be
1: a lot of challenge. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But while you were covering the White House, you were elected by your peers. To be the president of the White House Correspondents' Association, it was, right? and that uh, has to be a true honor.
0: It was, yeah, it, it was. And at the time, I mean, the, the, even though everybody's most familiar with the dinner, the job really revolves around two things: one, representing the press corps and his dealings with the administration, so fighting for access and all that. And also, in those days, when the president traveled, not everybody could fit on Air Force One, so right. we would charter our own plane, and we were the contracting entity to rent like a gigantic 747 and so we had to make sure that we paid the bills Yeah. which was a challenging part of the job that, <laughs> that but, has to yeah. be
1: well they're also you know, the White House is very limited in real estate the restrooms limited the number of seats that can be in there so there's a pool approach to yeah. reporting the White House what well, does the White House Correspondents Association manage that process who's the pool reporter for that really and it was
0: set up um, on a rotational basis um, yeah. the one thing and one thing I did do that I was proud of, I got the first blogger into the White House briefing room oh. because the White House wasn't going to let him in, so I called the then-White House press secretary and said, you know, either you're going to let this guy in and you're going to get beat about the head and shoulders or just let him in and don't worry about it. But interestingly, I got some blowback from my colleagues at the time, too, because I they said, you know, bloggers aren't real reporters. So I said, "Hey, listen, don't worry. This guy's going to come one day, find out it's boring,
1: and he'll be done with these briefings." That's exactly what happened. <laughs> clever, <laughs> clever by half. Uh, and uh, so, how long you were you were doing White House correspondent work for? Six I, years, I'd all I'd eight. I started.
0: By the time I left in 2007, I okay. was the only guy who had been there on George W.'s first campaign swing in june of what is it 20 2004 no june of no. 2003. 2000 1999 Ninety, yeah right. 1999, 1999. the yeah. election was 2000. yeah that's okay. right so i'd almost did two full terms and i was assigned to hillary for the um 2008 campaign mm. which know. would have been interesting i thought about doing that but i
1: just saw the way journalism was going and decided it was probably a good idea to make a change mm. So did H&K, well, I think you started with another firm called Public Strategies, Public Strategies. which ended up buying out H&K, essentially. Well, right? there's a management Merck, takeover. All, the management yeah. takeover, yeah. Okay. Uh, that Public Strategies is a Texas-based firm, so there might have been some connections there or yeah, maybe exactly. with the CEO, Jack Martin. That, yeah. Did they come find you?
0: No, I was having dinner with, or having lunch with, no, breakfast with Mark McKinnon, who's you yeah. know, knocked around this town for a long time, and I knew him from Texas. And, uh and I was just kind of figuring out what to do. We had breakfast and I got back to my office and got a call and said, hey, you want a job? I really wasn't looking for a job, I was just trying to explore opportunities. It's but easier to find a job when you have a job, isn't it? Yeah, and I was glad to have had that opportunity.
1: That's great. Never looked back, this is a good fit for you? Yeah,
0: it's, I've had a, some wonderful experiences, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, t- 10 years with the International Olympic Committee, a lot of time in Switzerland. Several years with Her Royal Highness Princess Haya from Jordan and Dubai. No, I'm not going to let East, you go so. without
1: going into more of that. You, you, <laughs> have, you have to talk about your IOC experience and working with Her Highness and all that. Give us, give us a little taste of that. Uh,
0: the IOC started with um, when the torch relay was violently attacked in the run-up to Beijing 2008 no. over human rights. So I moved to Switzerland for two months to help them manage that and then moved to Beijing for a month during the games which was a challenge. I mean, dealing with the Chinese was a challenge then, and it's a challenge now. Uh, But then I did, I guess, the next five games. um, Really loved Rio for all the chaos around that. But, um, yeah, it was a fun organization to work with. And then Princess Haya, I met through the International Olympic Committee, a remarkable woman, the daughter of King Hussein of Jordan. But she was a member of the International Olympic Committee, and she competed in equestrian sport in the Sydney Games. Ended up running the International Equestrian Federation. She was also a UN Messenger of Peace because she started the first food aid NGO in the Arab world back in Jordan. Wow. So, very special person Yeah.
1: Well, that's that had to be a fantastic experience. A lot of the,
0: I signed on to do the humanitarian work, which was a blast. Oh, yeah. So a lot of,
1: they did a lot of good work. Fantastic. Well, Ron, I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. It's about all the time we have on Anti-Proof Politics, but Remember, kids, no matter what you think of D.C. politics these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. So with that, Ron, cheers. I'm with you, Bill. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well-known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest selected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.